Paxton and Heather and team. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Hey, grab your Bibles and turn to Philippians 3, if you will. Philippians 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, normally in this moment, we have a moment of corporate prayer. We're going to do that at the end of our service today. Uh, so we're going to jump right into the text this morning in Philippians chapter 3. While you're turning there, uh, I want to talk to you uh, and, and let you know that it's just really exciting to see so many of you folks this morning. I know summertime is like the strangest time, and, and, and every week, uh, all of our, our folks, that like I look out at certain seats, and I can see folks not sitting in seats and missing folks. I know they're on vacation. I know they're not here. I know they got stuff going on, uh, but man, really, really glad to see so, so many folks uh, here today and, and to continue and worship with you in this series as we walk through the book of Philippians uh, in our sermon series in Philippians called Gospel Humility as we look at the beautiful opportunity that we have to embrace the humility that comes with understanding, recognizing what the gospel is for us, and then also how to live a life that models the beautiful humility, not just that Paul would describe, but that Christ demonstrated in every way, being humble, taking the form of a servant, being born in our likeness, not considering equality with God something to be grasped, but instead serving That model Christ gives us as a beautiful picture of how to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourself, and proclaim the gospel to the world. This morning, we're going to look at what I think is one of the really most unique parts of what Paul is doing as he writes to the Philippian church, this group of believers in this area in Philippi, little Rome, this little tiny area, this Roman province uh, colony. He, he writes to them and describes all of these things about how to live in light of the gospel. And today, he moves to this place that we see in chapter 3 where he helps them understand how little they really have apart from Christ. Uh, you and I will begin to see that if we just kind of stack up our resume, we just kind of stack up all the things that we have, it is not enough. It is not enough to attain the righteousness of Christ. Uh, so I'm enamored with this idea about writing a resume. Uh, does anybody love writing a resume? All right, so we, I've got a couple of nerds in the room. All right, just a few of us like this. But I, when, I, when it comes to the formatting component I think it's really, really challenging. Do you ever sit down, like, and you, you sit down, and it's Microsoft Word for most of us, I would imagine, and you're, like, trying to pick the right template, and you're like, what is, what do people want in 2022 from a resume? What is this thing supposed to look like? And then really, more, even more than that, the formatting, how do, how do I describe what I do? How do I say, like, what my job is? And not only that, how do I make it sound really good? That, I think, is the most challenging part. My wife uh, exists sometimes in the weirdest corners of the Internet, and she found this for me, and I want to show it to you uh, this morning. If I asked you this question, how would you write, I changed a light bulb on your resume? Something so simple. I changed a light bulb. How would you write that? I want to show you what three people said, how they described their do this. They're awesome. Here's the first one. Proactively implemented, concrete, and cost-effective solutions that brought both horizontal and vertical impact to the workplace by raising visibility for all colleagues, illuminating the office, and fostering a more inclusive work environment. Pretty impressive, right? Here's the next one. Single-handedly managed the successful upgrade and deployment 
of new environmental illumination system with zero cost overruns and zero safety incidents. Here's the last one. Single-handedly deployed illumination solution transforming workplaces, simultaneously enhancing workplace safety as well as productivity. No ladder, no like got one out of the box, hopped up and screwed it in, you know, flicked the switch, made sure the connection's tight. Here we go. It lights up, right? This is like the most churched up way, the most like embellished way to describe this action. And here's the reality. I I think when it comes to writing like professional resumes, when it comes to writing a resume, that's really challenging. But in so many other areas of our life, writing a resume is easy and we do it all the time. We do it all the time. Like I see people crafting their social resume constantly. They're taking pictures of everything that they're doing. And, but it's not just that. Like, I don't, if you've ever taken a picture, typically, with, with a, a person that, that you are married to or you have a, a long relationship with, you have a side that you stand on. Like, I know my side. It is this, I, I, I can't be on this side. I'm on this side. And I know where the hair goes. And I know that we take one picture and then we re-look at it. We look at it. We examine it. Right? And then we brush our hair again. And then we take another picture, and then that one's not good, so we take a couple more, right? Is this just me? All right, because I'm, I'm in a lot of photos that I'll never, ever, ever, ever see again. We don't ever look at them again. But um, don't tell her I said that. But we, we, we take this photo, but it's not really of that actual moment. It is of that moment, but we've, we've sculpted, and we've crafted, and we've transformed it, and we've changed it. I want to tell you about the other resume that I think is glaring that you and I write. It's this spiritual one, this personal spiritual one that we all have, where when we're confronted with the reality of our sin, when we're confronted with the reality of our need and that we're insufficient, when we experience brokenness or pain, is the first thing that we run to confession? I don't think so. I think quite often we reach in our back pocket and we pull out the spiritual resume. But Lord, don't you see that I've done this? Didn't you see how I did this? And aren't I righteous because of this? What we see in this text today in Philippians chapter 3 is Paul give the resume of resumes. He will say from a religious perspective, from one who would follow the law... In every way, shape, or form, he has the best resume. Anything that we could do, Paul has done better. No matter what. And he's going to say that all of that righteousness, that, 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 that spiritual resume that he's crafted, everything that he's done is worthless. It's of no value when it comes to attaining righteousness. It can only be in Christ. So let's look at this text together, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, and see how beneficial this is, not only for the Philippian church to which Paul has written, but for us as well. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, 
to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. Embedded in this passage is Paul's resume. And we're going to get to it in a moment. We're going to walk through these verses and see what he's, what he's urging the Philippian people to understand. These believers to grasp onto, these people to, to, to really take hold of and understand that their righteousness, all that they are, their true identity is found in Christ Jesus. If we recapped and looked at all that Paul has written thus far, a few major themes emerge. In chapter 1, he begins describing, thanking these believers. Of all the letters Paul writes, this is one in which he talks to these folks, not convincing them of the gospel for the very first time. Not trying to to help them understand the truth in in a really basic way. But instead, he honors them and says, look, you're believers. You know the Lord Jesus. And I'm so thankful that every time I think of you, I'm reminded of your faithfulness. I thank the Lord. But he goes on to tell these believers, people like you and me, people who love the Lord and are pursuing the Lord, but need to be encouraged, need to be pushed, need to be challenged. He goes to this place where he describes his commitment to Christ and ultimately how believing in the gospel has transformed his life in such a way that he would say that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the magnitude, that's the power of gospel belief and the humility that Paul is expressing, he's communicating for these believers to take on, to embody, to live out. He goes on to say that the main thing that these believers are called to, the main thing for the Christian is to walk in a manner, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. What does that look like? That means standing firm in the gospel. We sang of this this morning. To stand firm, not on our own righteousness, but what Christ has done. And then he gives this beautiful picture of who Christ is. And helps these believers understand that that the secret to living life 
to walking in a manner worthy of the gospel is to believe in the truth of the gospel as he proclaims the gospel to them, as he describes Christ who has come, Christ who died, and Christ who has risen. He talks about what it looks like to live in that reality as believers together and then how to live it out in the world. How to live out your faith, how to live out the gospel in the world. When Paul comes to this place in chapter 3, it's really important to recognize that he sees that there's a potential enemy that can thwart all of this. Something that pushes back against the truth of the gospel. Against the truth, the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Something that in so many ways would try to pull the goodness out of that and put it into ourselves. This is what he sees. We talked, it's, it's a group of people that, that are ultimately what, what would, that would be described as Judaizers. People who would come and say, you can only really be a part of this faith. You can only really have God's love. You can only really experience fullness of relationship with him if you do these things. Now, here's the reality. We've talked for weeks and weeks that the context of this is, is quite frankly, a predominantly Gentile area. Paul is writing to a group of people that, that's not mostly made up of Jewish Christians. However, he knows that this is going to be a challenge for the church. And he knows that works make us happy for a moment. That trusting in the things that we do really gives us energy. When we succeed on our own righteousness, we don't want to admit it, but we get fired up by that. I kept that command. I was obedient. I did that thing. And when we do that, we're failing to believe in the gospel. We miss it. Paul goes on to describe and say this because he says, look, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. So he's reiterating these same gospel truths to them. And he says it's for their safety. It's safe for them. You need to know that this word means to safeguard or protect about something that is coming. So Paul has the foresight to see that for these believers, there's going to be this temptation to trust in their own righteousness. To trust in the things that they do rather than the person and work of Jesus Christ and what has been done for them. That righteousness has been attained for them. He says this, he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. All right, in this triad, in this statement, in verse 2, there's three really poignant things. He says, he says, look out for the dogs. This is scathing language. This is degrading language. This is calling someone, in so many ways, less than human. It's describing someone in an animalistic and a carnal way. And what Paul is doing is he's saying these people that would tell you that you have to keep all of the 613 commandments found in Mosaic law. If people are telling you that you have to live in this way to be accepted, to be righteous. Can't believe them. That is, they are acting as if they are a dog. They're acting, quite frankly, in a way that is inhumane in relationship to faith in the gospel. 
Because it's Christ alone that saves, not the works that we do. He goes on and he describes them not only as dogs, but as evil doers. So you would find this same Greek word, you would find a version of it in a number of psalms. You'll find it tons in the psalms, particularly in Psalm chapter, psalm chapter 5, verse 5. This, the ones who are labeled in the Old Testament as evildoers, and his people will be familiar with this, are ones who did not obey Torah law, who did not obey the scriptures. So what he's doing is he's taking this phrase and he's inverting it. This would normally be a phrase that would be reserved for the kind of people that made up the Philippian church. It'd be, it'd be a phrase that's reserved for Gentiles, people who didn't have the right background, people who didn't have this rich, steeped Jewish faith. But Paul says, no, the ones who are actual evildoers evil are the ones who are saying that it is the law that makes one holy. We can't keep it. It'll reveal our sin. It'll illuminate in a proactive and concrete way who we are in our brokenness. But it cannot save us. And look at the last thing he says. He says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul's referring to circumcision, and he's going to describe that at the beginning of verse 3. But this is the thrust of what he's saying. He's saying there are people who are encouraging these Gentile Christians at Philippi. There are people throughout, and this is going to be a big issue in the letter to the Galatians. It's going to be a big issue in a number of New Testament churches. Folks saying, hey, well, look, all this, all this Christ stuff is incredible, but we probably still need to get circumcised just to be sure. We need to take on this mark that God ordained at the beginning of his people to, to show that we're set apart. Sure, sure, we can believe in what Christ has done for us, but, but we've got to do something to really actually show that we're righteous, right? Like, we have to do this. And Paul is saying that they're disregarding, that they're sinning against, that they're mutilating their flesh. Because the real circumcision that God longs for is not a physical one, but it's of the heart. That's what... The Lord wants. Look into verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. I can't describe to you how nuts this is. That Paul is saying, for we are the circumcision. And he's not saying this in some sheerly like metaphorical way. In a storytelling way. He's saying this in an actual way. In a practical way. And he is saying the people who are the circumcision. Are the ones who aren't circumcised. The people who are a part of God's family. The people who have been set apart. In the most marked way. Are not the people. Who do all the right things. And say all the right things. And have the right history. And have the right background. They are simply the people who have trusted in Christ. They're simply the people who have yielded to Christ. So, so as, as these Gentile believers would hear these words, the Jewish folks around them would be astounded to hear Paul write this. What do you mean they're the circumcision? These are people from Rome. These are Greco-Roman people. These are people not only with not the right religious background, they don't have a religious background at all. None. Zero. 
And you're telling me that you're going to call them the circumcision? That they're this set apart, market noted group of people? You would say, yes, how? They worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and they put no confidence in the flesh. For you and I, every day, I truly believe this, is a daily battle for you and I to not put confidence in our flesh. This is not language that Paul would write for the new believer. This is language for all believers. This is, this is something that he's encouraging faithful believers to recognize and understand. Do you and I recognize this? And this is a real question. This is not like, oh, that's a rhetorical thing he's doing in the moment. This is for us. This is real. Do we recognize the struggle that we have in putting confidence in ourselves? Because you need to understand when Paul writes these words and pins these words, this flesh that he describes is not sheerly just, just, just the language that is used for the body. It's actually the language that's used to describe someone, some total character. And more than that, the way that they live morally. So Paul's not just talking about skin and bones. He's talking about morals. He's saying, I put no confidence in the things that I do. These things are not things that I do to get to God. Ultimately, the thrust of this entire passage is this beautiful reminder to say again, to this group of believers and for us to read and hear and pray and meditate upon again and again and again and to be reminded that we're to have no confidence in the things that we do. Those things do not get us to God. Instead, for the believer, the way that we live morally should be a reflection of what Christ is doing in us. Because we believe in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. Because we live in its reality together, we're only going to live it out if we trust in what Jesus has done on our behalf. And Paul will walk through and describe what that looks like for us. He says this, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Do you guys remember the, uh, I think it's like the late 90s, probably 96, 97, there's this Gatorade commercial there were a series of these, but it was Michael Jordan and Mia Hamm, the lady soccer player. Do you guys remember this? Anybody? All right. The whole theme of it was anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything greater than you. And there, Michael Jordan is, I, I thought I sang that pretty well. I had a little, probably some tough looks there. Um, Melody's not my strong suit. <laughs> um, so he is, Michael Jordan is playing basketball and he's crushing Mia Hamm in basketball, right? Well, Mia's now playing soccer, and she's running circles around him, and he's dizzy. And then they move to tennis and wiffle ball, and, and they're fencing. And it's like every sport imaginable, and they're just going back and forth in this competitive way. One is naturally better than the other, but they're both doing it to kind of stack up the resume and see who's the best. Here's what Paul says. Nobody stacks up to me. Nobody stacks up to what I've done. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. This is what he says. Circumcised on the eighth day. Here's what you need to know about this. 
This is, this is the day to be circumcised according to law. But it was very rare that this would always happen. So there's not this giant group of people who are Israelites who are all circumcised on the eighth day. In fact, quite often, it was for very select few people that it happened to. Not only that, but Paul would say that he's of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Here's what he means. That he's a Jew by birth, not conversion. That the people that God created... That he set apart to know and enjoy him and experience him. Paul has the pedigree to do this better than anyone else. And this is what he says. He says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Quite simply, what that means is that Paul was a Hebrew speaker. That he spoke Hebrew and it was from a group of people who spoke Hebrew. Because you've got to understand, in this day and age, not every Jewish person and a number of them were not speaking Hebrew. They were speaking Aramaic. So Paul is saying, look, my lineage, my history goes back to the very beginning. And then he says this, this really important thing surrounding of the tribe of Benjamin. Why does he mention that? A couple of things. One, Paul's given name is what? Saul. Who's he named after? Saul, the first king of Israel, a Benjamite. Why is the tribe of Benjamin so important? Because it is the group, it's the, it's the, it's the one group the Old Testament that's known for its faithfulness. Benjamin was the only one of Jacob's sons, of Israel's sons, that was actually born in the promised land. Paul's saying, look at everything that has been before me, everything that preceded me, everything that I've come from. Even before Paul, in so many ways, is awakened to the reality of his life, he has Everything in so many ways going for him to be at the spot where he truly can experience and know and help others know the Lord. And then he says this. As to the law of Pharisee. And when you and I hear the word Pharisee, it comes with some deeply negative connotations. But here's what he means in this moment. He means that he's a law keeper. He means that he keeps the law to its fullest extent. And then he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. What does that mean? It doesn't sound like he's building a good resume when he says that. But this is what he's saying. I, more than any other, was so longing for purity and connection to the Lord that those who seemed as outsiders, I would do anything at all costs. I would defend this righteousness, this faith. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul is saying, look, I've done, like anybody that's coming into the church, anybody that's coming into this place and telling you, you need Christ, but you also need these things. Trust in Jesus, but you got to be circumcised. Or trust in Christ, but, but you have to look this way or do this thing. Right? Hey, Trust in Christ, but if, if, if you're not, and I'm going to say some, some challenging things here, okay? Because here's the reality. Our faith, our trust in Christ ought to take us to places where we longingly read the scriptures, where we longingly pray, where we spend time edifying our lives by being around other believers. But this is, in our world, it's this. It's, it, you can trust Jesus, but if, if you're not with the right people, if you're not if hanging out with the right crowd, if you don't do the right things, if you don't look the right way, or if you're not from the Christian home, 
you're not from the right background, if mom and dad didn't teach Sunday school, if you weren't there every time the doors were open, these things are not true. Truly, they are lies from the pit of hell. You know how you know? They smell like smoke. It's stuff that is not true. Our faith is predicated on not what we look like, not what we do, and quite frankly and very candidly, not the things that you and I have done. Our righteousness comes from what Christ has done for us. This is the great exchange. And Paul goes on to say that this is what that exchange looks like. That we're going to get this righteousness that doesn't come from the law. And this is what Paul would say. Whatever gain he had, he counts as loss for the sake of Christ. I want you to think about this. The best moment, the best thing you've done. Holding the door, helping somebody across the street, saving a physical life. Snatching someone out of the jaws of death. I, I don't know what it is in your life that is maybe in so many ways a hallmark moment that, you would, that, that would define you. Something that, that you longingly would want read in your eulogy. That thing that, that would be the most, just the top of the resume. Whatever it is. And think about this. Do you want that or you want Christ's Righteousness. Because I don't know about you, and look, there's a lot of you that have done a lot better stuff than me, I'm sure. But what, about whatever my best thing is, I'm counting it as loss in the face of Christ's righteousness. It, it, it will not profit me in comparison with what Christ has done. And then Paul would say this, everything... All worth, all value is just this. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is one of the most powerful, just succinct pictures we have of our faith. Everything is worthless. I'll throw everything away just to have relationship, just to know, just to experience the life that the gospel affords me in Christ. I'll throw everything away. I won't count the car, the job, the family, all the things that we experience and people to every relationship. People we love with all our heart. I'm not going to find my identity there. I'm not going to find my righteousness there. i got to count those things, the best of things that we experience in life as loss compared to the surpassing worth, the infinite worth, the precious worth of having a relationship with God in Jesus Christ. For this end... That Paul would say that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. What does that look like? What does it look like to know Christ and the power of his 
resurrection. Paul's going to use some words here and some, and some things that, that are not our favorite things. Because if there's one thing I know about me, and I'm pretty sure I know it about you, is we don't like suffering. Anybody a fan? All right. A couple people like making resumes. Nobody likes suffering. All right? But Paul is saying, I'm willing to share in these sufferings in this life. The pain that comes from trusting in Christ and how crazy that is to this world instead of building up the resume to look great and to feel great and to think that I have worth and I have value. Instead, I would rather suffer the pain of losing whatever glory this world affords so that I could be with Christ. That's his longing. That's his desire. Because the joy is this. Look into verse 9. He says, for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, and look at verse 9, and be found in him. This is the, this is the main thing this text is getting to. To be found in him. Not to find ourselves. Not to build a life in which we could say, you know, I was, I was really coming to terms with who I was and learned about myself and finding myself. And so I invested my time here and I invested my energy here and I invested my money here and I invested my affinity and my love and my care here. The goal of life is for us to be found. But it's to be found in him. Is to be found in Jesus Christ. And the language that Paul uses setting this up, he says, for, for his sake, for Christ's sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I can't express to you the magnitude of what he means by this. Rubbish is like a British lady's way of saying garbage, right? Trash, you know? put the rubbish in the bin kind of stuff, right? We don't talk like that. Paul doesn't either. Our English translators are very family-friendly folks. So they're going to use a word like rubbish. And I'm not going to say the word you're thinking because it's not helpful, all right? It's not. But there's not a commentator in the Western Hemisphere that doesn't agree that that's what he's saying. This is garbage of the deepest magnitude, so much so that Paul would would liken it into human excrement. All of the things that we've done, filthy rags. All of the ways that we've tried to build ourselves up to gain righteousness, even with, with, with so many times pure intent, we fail and we fail and we fail. What's our hope? This is our hope. That we are found in Jesus Christ. Look at what it says. Not having a righteousness of my own, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I quite often feel like, look, my job feels, I understand Paul's pain. He's saying, look, I'll just tell you again and again. And you need to know this and hear this very clearly. The Spirit has preached this to me all week long as well. And so in this moment, I'm, I'm not saying this to you. I'm saying this to me as well, to all of us. This is the great struggle for me to wake up. And I don't just mean physically wake up, but I mean awaken my heart and my senses to the reality daily that I am not my Savior. I cannot be my Savior. That the things that you and I do will not save us. Paul is reminding people that are in Christ, believers, that their righteousness is not good enough. I want to tell you, believer or non-believer, this sounds like bad news. You're not good enough. Your works are not good enough. Your sin is too evil. Your brokenness is beyond just broken. It's not just broken in a few pieces. It is shattered to smithereens. It's like trying to put sand together into full pieces. Or those shards of glass that are, that are so hard. You, you, you break it on the floor, you can't even find it. You can't even see it to get it back together. That sounds terrible, but here is good news. And I do mean good news. Because that's what gospel means. In Christ's life, in his death, in his resurrection... We have the freedom, we have the opportunity to be restored to a relationship with God and take on that righteousness to embrace, to receive, to truly be given the very righteousness of Christ because of what he's done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. So for the non-believer, that is hope. That is hope because when you look at your life and you look at your resume and everything that's happened, there's some, there's, you think there's some good things there. And then you realize, not only anything I could do, Paul has done better, but I, I, I can't attain to this. I can't keep this law. And there's hope in Christ. We're freely offered the opportunity to receive this righteousness, this righteousness that allows us not only to know the Lord, but the power of the resurrection. That we would be made alive truly even after our physical body is dead. When Paul would write in Romans chapter 6 and he describes baptism. He says, don't you realize that all of you who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. You know what he's talking about there? He's saying that the death that, that you died when you came to know Christ, the death of that old self. It, this is not metaphorical. It really died with Jesus. Jesus took on that old self. He took on that sin. He took on that weight in the cross. And the power of the resurrection is this. That he raised from the dead. And that you and I, as a result, will truly, actually, physically be raised to newness of life. That's the power of resurrection hope. 
And here's the wild thing. Paul's not saying this to a bunch of people that don't know Jesus. He's saying this to people like you. Because I know you. So many of you, I've, I've heard your story. I know how Christ has redeemed you. Some of you I've, I've seen in, in recent months and even the last couple of years experience that new life and, and have the great exchange happen to you here in the context where I get to see it happen. I've watched you yield your life, trust in Christ, and grow in obedience. So why does Paul say this? Why is he saying, he's using this like really, really aggressive language. He's out here calling people dogs, saying that, that they have less, in so many ways, that they, they live as they have less worth than humans. He's saying that all of your righteousness is a bunch of bull. Truly. He's saying this. To people like you and me, why is he doing that? Because we don't remember. We fail to remember. We've got to be a people that truly recognizes our need for Jesus, not just at one moment in the past. Not just in that moment when we trusted in Christ for the very first time, but every moment of every day. The enemy would love for you to, to just come here and just sit and just think that the whole point of this is like, we're people who are nice to each other and we want to get a little better. I'm serious. The devil would love that. Because that's not transformative. That's not change. The goal is for us to come to this place weekly and say, i got to believe the gospel. i got to trust in the righteousness of Christ, not just... In the future, or not just at some moment in the past, but right now, I'm called to believe in the gospel of everything that Christ has done. That my defining mark, my identity, is all wrapped up in that righteousness, and I didn't go get it. I didn't go get it. And people who believe that, when you and I believe that, We're going to do this incredible thing. We're going to love people so radically that we're not going to care about where they came from. We're not going to care about their pedigree. We're not going to care about what their their church attendance history has been like. If their dad was a deacon, or if their mom taught Sunday school, or quite frankly, we're not going to care about what we saw them doing Friday night. We're not going to care about that thing that everybody knows, but they won't talk about, but they know it's why that person is an outcast. Because we can identify with that outcast. You know why? Because we tried to to build a resume, too. We tried to be righteous, too. We tried to carve out a spot in life where we were important, where we were valued, where we were loved. And some of that, for us, looked like making a bunch of horrible decisions. But thanks be to God that we have experienced by only the power of the Spirit the opportunity to believe in the gospel, to trust in Christ, and experience his righteousness. Look, today is just another day in some ways to us. It's just another Sunday. But here's how it's more. It's an opportunity for you to believe in the gospel today. 
to trust in what Christ has done for you today. You and I are the beneficiaries of this righteousness that we couldn't attain. Can we leave this place today rejoicing at what Christ has done? His life, his death, his resurrection takes our horrible, pitiful attempt at a resume to please him. Throws it away because for the rubbish that it is. And gives us the embrace of acceptance. The love that we desire as we're found in him. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come this morning to respond. We long, Father, to take these words that Paul would write as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit's heart. God, that our resume, that the things that we've done, Father, they yield no benefit. Our only hope is the gospel. The good news for sinners. God, that was our hope when we came to you, and it's our hope today. God, would you cause us to believe in and to recognize and to trust in the fact that we we don't live and move and breathe and exist in a righteousness of our own. Instead, it is truly the righteousness that we have in Christ Jesus that gives us freedom. God, so would you make us a people that, that believes this, that believes in the gospel? God, people who are transformed in gospel humility, that this would humble us. Our inability to to please you, to satisfy you, would humble us as we trust in the finished work of your son Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. May that be our hope. May it be to which we cling. Father, we expectantly pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. Let's take a time together this morning. Um, and I would encourage you as we sing, as we respond, um, to ask the Lord to make the gift of grace, the reality of the gospel, so clear and rich to you that it brings you to a place of praise. Let's worship him together.